0: Libros Schmibros is a podcast exploring the people, books, movies, and ideas that Angelenos care about in a thoughtful way that even New Yorkers can understand. We're coming to you from Libros Schmibros, our nonprofit bilingual lending library in Boyle Heights on the west coast of the country and the east bank of the mighty Los Angeles River. Hello, <laughs> not just to you, John, but to everybody out there in podcast land. I'm David Kippen. I'm here with the Libro Schmibros podcast and uh, Libros Mibros, being the nonprofit bilingual lending library that we are only too happy to uh, run in Boyle Heights in which everybody within the sound of my voice is ardently encouraged to come visit um, I, just as uh, well Wednesday through Sunday from 12 to six um, countywide pandemic numbers permitting as they do this week, but who can, who can say about next week? We are thrilled today. To be visiting with uh, my friend and uh, and and uh, longtime hero John Weiner, um, who is a um, <laughs> who is a historian and an author and a distinguished figure on the Los Angeles cultural and political scene, going back uh, probably longer than he cares to uh, to admit. And I just discovered today, um, consulting his Wiki- Wikipedia page, um, the following. John Wiener is a political commentator, often advocating for left-leaning causes, such as workers'
1: rights. <laughs> this is the genius of Wikipedia. Who, writes, who are the Wikipedians? You could be if you decided that
0: uh, workers' rights is more than just a left-leaning cause, but that would I, require...
1: They don't let you uh, edit your own page, I don't think. Really? Then get a stooge. I have a stooge who edits mine and she'll say any damn thing I tell her to. (laughs)
0: Um, But anyway, um, we are here here on the flimsy pretext. Well, actually, we have our choice of flimsy pretexts. Um, John is very recently the co-author of Set the Night on Fire, his and Mike Davis's history of Los Angeles, and especially political
1: Los Angeles in the 1960s, about... To which, which, may I say, to which you devoted Libros Schmibros podcast number one, A Magnificent Hour with Mike Davis
0: of which we are deeply proud and uh, whose sequel is long overdue and I'm glad to be hosting it today. Uh, We're also talking to John because he's one of the leading authorities on the Chicago 7, which uh, Aaron Sorkin has just made a movie out of for Netflix. And I thought we might start um, by asking John just what he thought of this uh, translation, uh, literal or, or, or not so literal, of events that he knows as well
1: as anybody. Well, you know, the um, the most boring thing a historian can say about a historical film is it's not accurate. Uh, but then still, everybody wants to know, you know, did Dave Dellinger really punch somebody at the end of the trial? Uh, did Attorney General Ramsey Clark really, was he really called to testify? Did they really go, did Tom Hayden really go to his house? So, um, it's kind of a, a problem to decide. Well, um, you know, the real question is not, "Is this film accurate?" The real problem is, isn't any good. And I think we have to start by acknowledging that it's not a documentary. There are documentaries about the Chicago Seven. This is an Aaron Sorkin drama that follows the Aaron Sorkin method, which requires an uplifting, happy ending and characters who you know the aaron sorkin rules are uh uh, men it's all about men men debate with each other big ideas intense arguments all very eloquent and through this process of argument and debate they come to see that their opponents are not all bad they come to see that they have limitations and weaknesses that they may not have been aware of beforehand, and then at the end, we can all come together in appreciation of our shared values and live happily ever after until the next week of Aaron Sorkin, whatever it is. And he that's what he does in, in, in this film. And you know, if you like Aaron Sorkin, this is a very successful film. In fact, it's one of It's one of the most written about and most liked films on Rotten Tomatoes and what higher judge is there, than Rotten Tomatoes, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down. This is like 91% positive 260 reviews. So who are we to say there are flaws, weaknesses and inaccuracies in this film. perhaps
0: we're not Aaron Sorkin's mother who may be responsible for those two. No, I I too am a huge fan of Aaron Sorkin when he's on his game. And I I actually have a a not so private theory because it was published in my book, The Schreiber Theory, that all of Aaron Sorkin's movies are really about writing. Um, they're They're about writing legal briefs. They're about writing political speeches. They're about the creative process and his creative process tends to be writing a whole lot of words to fit into people's mouths. And yes, I I enjoyed the show too. What did you think of the performances? I'm curious.
1: Well, uh, you know, people are saying that Sasha Baron Cohen was born to play Abby Hoffman. In some ways, Abby Hoffman is like um, a, 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 a more focused, more engaged version of Borat. Uh, so it's kind of an extension uh, uh, of of the Sasha Baron Cohen, you know, screen persona into party politics, anti-war action in in America. And obviously, Sasha Baron Cohen loves playing this role. He has talked about how much he admires Abby Hoffman, how much he learned from him, how he thinks Abby Hoffman was the smartest person you know, of the, uh, of the 60s. So there were, and he's sort of the star of the film. He gets the best lines. Um, you know, his his arc is a very, com- the, let's talk, can we talk about arcs here? The, of course, how can we not? How can we not? The the um, Aaron Sorkin arc for Abby Hoffman is um, the clown, the guy who says revolution for the hell of it, learns to take politics seriously. The key scene is when he is uh, confronted at a press conference. He has joked uh, that if the city of Chicago, in preparation for the 1968 demonstrations at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, he has joked that if they gave him $100,000, he would would call the whole thing off. And the the reporters are pressing him, you know, was this true, is this a serious offer? Well, what is your price? And suddenly, Abby stops joking and he says, my price, my price for the revolution, for the revolution, my life, he says, and we all feel Abby has learned, Abby <laughs> has learned through this confrontation with the media. To be, He hasn't lost his delightful, playful persona, uh, but there's a serious core there that, that we, uh, we admire. So I thought Sasha Sach- Baron Cohen did a wonderful job uh, as Abby. Um, you know, then we have Sir Mark Rylance, one of the great Shakespearean actors of our time, who could forget him in Wolf Hall playing Thomas Cromwell. Here he returns as another lawyer, um, making arguments to the powerful. Um, he's got, uh, he, he's not as tall as, as William Kunstler, <laughs> uh, but he, um, he's got the hair, uh, he's got the emotions, you know, he's Mark Rylance, he's, how can you, you know, he wanted to do this role, it's a wonderful thing for us to have Mark Rylance, you know, whatever he does, he's going to be great. Um, you know, there's all these other Englishmen in this movie, I'm not quite sure why, uh, you know, Jeremy Strong, who plays uh, Jerry Rubin, he's an Englishman, I, I I, sort of don't get it, Um yeah. Do you have they, a theory?
0: They, yes, they, they tend to be better actors, and they especially, <laughs> they tend to be better actors of dialogue, and I think that's what Aaron Sorkin values uh, above all else, as I, uh, you know, when it's clicking, tend to do. Now, you knew some of these historical
1: figures personally, I suppose? A little bit, I admit. Uh, well, of course, I worked with Tom Hayden. Our book, Conspiracy in the Streets, The Trial of the Chicago, The Extraordinary Trial of the Chicago Seven, Contains uh, introduction by John Weiner and then afterward by Tom Hayden and Tom and I basically put this together ourselves what ten years ago and uh, the New Press reissued it on the occasion of the film coming out. This is what you do in publishing. You know, it's it's hard to get people to buy books and movies are movies are one thing that inspires people to buy books so yeah tom and i worked worked on this and other things i you know he's been around la for a long he was around la for a long time he represented us in the state legislature for eight terms or something like that so yeah i i i knew tom the other ones i didn't really ever have much um much to do with. I just, I just met Rennie Davis like two weeks ago at one of these video live events. Uh, you know, he's 81 years old. He's in fantastic shape. He seems like a wonderful guy. Uh, But, um, mostly, you know, I was a kid. I, you know, followed the news like everybody else in
0: 1969. Um, Actually, I was hoping we might get into a bit of you as a kid, your own arc. How did you wind uh, uh, up? <laughs> yes, of course. Real people get arcs. Um, you know, how did you go from being a kid in, where was it? To uh, St. Saint, Saint Paul, Minnesota. St. Paul, Minnesota to, you know,
1: a distinguished uh, L.A. political activist with a shelf full of thick books behind him. You know, I... The, these are you don't think these are really my books. All these books come from Libro Schmibros, and I, I, I had to haul them over here to, to create a appropriate looking professor's uh, set. But thanks to Libro Schmibros for <clears throat> uh you asked had a question, I believe. It was about my arc. How did I get how did I get out of Saint Paul? I went to Saint Paul Central High School. Hmm. And for some reason that I've never really understood, a Princeton recruiter came to our high school um, and asked the counselor, you know, who the counselor recommended. The counselor recommended three of us. And we were all offered scholarships. And we all went to to Princeton. it turns out I I discovered that... um, Princeton, there had been some change of heart in the Princeton admissions office. And they did this also in St. Louis and in Cleveland and very Midwestern big city high schools. Previously, Princeton had turned to Minnesota primarily for hockey players from farm high schools.
0: <laughs> now, point of order here. Um, <laughs> The St. Paul to Princeton trajectory has more distinguished alumni than just ballplayers. Is that not true?
1: Well, perhaps you are referring to F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yes. Uh, yes. But he did not go to Central High School. <laughs> he was part of the local, uh, like, but that was, yes, of course. And he loomed large at Princeton when we arrived, um, so you know, uh, what was his book about going, going, going to Princeton? Was that Tender, Tender is the Night? Was that no, no, the no, no. Tender is the
0: Night was the last great one. No, I think it might've been This Side
1: of Paradise. This or the- Side of Paradise. Yeah, it's about, it's about arriving at Princeton from, from St. Paul in what, 1920 or something. I don't know. Anyway, uh, yes, you, of course, David Kippen would know, would know, uh, would know about this. So then at Princeton, it was the sixties. We organized an SDS chapter. Uh, Tom Hayden was running. The SDS Community Organizing Project in Newark, just up the the road from Princeton. He would come down and talk to us. Um, uh, And um, then I went to grad school in in Cambridge, Mass, and worked for an underground newspaper called The Old Mole, which was a wonderful experience and made me want to be a radical journalist. And then uh, my girlfriend got a job teaching uh, at UCLA and I Came out with her, and my goal was to be a radical journalist. Oh, um, who
0: were your heroes?
1: Uh, well, uh, Robert Shear of Ramparts Magazine um, was kind of the reigning California uh, radical journalist. Of course, there were uh, noble predecessors uh, uh, in in this in, in this trajectory. But uh, one of the first things that happened when I arrived was that there was a well, first, Angela Davis was fired by the regions like uh, one month after, after we got to LA. Uh, so right away, there was a lot to write about. And then there was a wave of, of uh, arson attacks on left-wing centers um, perpetrated by a right-wing Cuban exile group of militant terrorists is what we call them they they bombed. we write about it in the there's a chapter about it in set the night on fire they bombed the Ashgrove music club they bombed the offices of the swp the socialist workers party uh and they they attacked attacked and firebombed a movement center uh, up by macarthur bark park called the haymarket and one of the things i did in my role as boy journalist was i went up to the ashes of the haymarket and interviewed the guy who'd been running the place, Mike Davis, who was already kind of a legendary L.A. movement figure. And I, wrote, I was writing at the time for there was a syndicate of the underground press called Liberation News Service that mailed a packet twice a week. This was before the Internet. Uh, it was before faxing. You put things in the mail and like 200 underground papers around the country subscribed and read my interview with Mike Davis about, you know, he was defiant, that they were planning to show a, a movie about Fidel. Um, uh, and uh, they said, you know, we're, we're still gonna show it. We're gonna, we're gonna set up a screen in the ashes of the, of the uh, hay market and everyone is invited. And, you know, this will only, uh, we'll only redouble our efforts to fight, you know, reaction, wherever it rears its ugly head. So that was that was almost exactly 50 years ago now. having And uh, that's where I met Mike Davis. I found him kind of, you know, he was very intense guy, very eloquent guy. And I have to say, it was a little intimidating at the time.
0: Did did he appreciate the poetry of a venue called the Haymarket being
1: bombed? <laughs> man who knows his history. I don't think he was in the appreciative mode on that, uh, on that <laughs> oh. occasion. But that was, I mean, then that, that was our, and, and you know, then we ended up writing 50 years later, uh, a, a book about that event, that episode and that era.
0: How would you compare the LA political scene
1: today to what it was 50 years ago? Much better much better. It's the, what Black Lives Matter accomplished in this past summer is just magnificent compared to anything that we attempted. It was, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations were much, much bigger, much more diverse. Black, white, Latino, Asian, much more um, intergenerational, everywhere, Uh, um, much spread out geographically. I mean, there was there was a Black Lives Matter uh, march in Newport Beach in August. Now, you know, we think of New- Newport Beach as where Trump held his fundraiser a couple of uh, last month. Uh, we think of it as kind of the the, uh, the the white hot heart of Republican voting and fundraising in you know the Western United States is Newport Beach. There's, it's the richest, the most Republican. Uh, the most reactionary place. And if there's Black Lives Matter in Newport Beach, something is changing in California. So I, I, I just have you know, we we had marches, We had marches of, you know, 10,000 10, people, but they had dozens, maybe a hundred Black Lives Matter uh, marches. and um, they're just much, much better at it than we were. Um, And and I've tried to, to, many people have asked, why do you think that is? And I get a little choked up when I come to this part of uh, it. You know, one of the things that crippled the, the, or the, yeah, that crippled or at least damaged the New Left was um, faction fights, internecine battles, SDS split into two factions at their 1969 convention. Each each half expelled the other half, um, spent a lot of time at this. It was the same among black radicals as we document in our book. The Black Panthers were bitter enemies of Ron Karenga's US group. In fact, uh, two US members ended up shooting and killing two Black Panthers at UCLA Campbell Hall Mm-hmm. Uh, in 19 or in 1968, um, nothing like that has happened in Black Lives Matter. They are a unified, coherent, no internal turmoil, and I think there's a, a simple reason for that. Black Lives Matter was founded and is still led by black women, and for mm-hmm. some reason, women don't have the same. Mm-hmm what should we say, macho rivalries with each other that the young men of the 1960s uh, had. So I think we need to celebrate and thank Black Lives Matter for doing so much better. And oh, one more thing about Black Lives Matter. Just in the last week here in Southern California, they had tremendous electoral victories. They elected a new district attorney. Who is, you know, going to, you know, not going to, uh, who's seeking to abolish the death penalty, abolish cash bail, um, end prosecution for of uh, minor offenses, engage in community, uh, you know, uh, alternatives to incarceration? This was inconceivable. Actually, it was inconceivable just a year ago, but it was certainly inconceivable 50 years ago. Uh, Prop J, the County of L.A., may I continue? Is going to divert 10 percent. Of its, um, you know, of its budget to alternatives to incarceration. This is a defund the police initiative, also inconceivable a year ago, much less 50 years ago. So Black Lives Matter, you can see I get excited about this. Yeah. It's been able to combine street protest and electoral politics in a way that no, no other left-wing group that I know of has succeeded to the extent that they have, at least here in Southern California. Send him to Georgia <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, well let's see. Um, I mean it's the, almost an Aaron Sorkin story you know it's of <laughs> happy it's, it's, it's got an ending where did it, here, I hear I got uh, Aaron Sorkin was on fresh air mm-hmm. He said he likes movies that end by putting a lump in your throat, give you a goosebump experience and make you feel two inches taller when it's over. <laughs> That's Black Lives Matter. uh, After this election, I wonder.
0: I wonder if he can buy the rights. (laughs) Now I notice um, Gore Vidal's United States over your shoulder, and you and you and Gore Vidal were close, weren't you?
1: Well, uh, yeah. I you know I uh, through the eighties he was sort of an intermittent guest on my KPFK show. He was an ardent critic of. Uh, of the Bush family, as he called them. They were, of course, uh, going back to uh, the founder of the family, Senator Prescott Bush from Connecticut was a rival of Gore Vidal's own uncle, um, who had been a a senator as well. So yeah, he loved to go on KPFK and and say rude things about George W. Bush. and, uh, you know, he was part of the Nation magazine. I was part of the Nation magazine. He had this wonderful house on Outpost, uh, which was kind of a legendary uh, legendary place. And, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, so then eventually I, I did a book of, um, and I interviewed him various places. You know, the, the book festival had me interview him. Um, and we had him in different venues where, I fed him straight lines and, did his thing. Uh, and you know, he was, he was, he was great at this. This is the, he, you know, he, I mean, he would go on, some of our, our listeners may remember Johnny Carson. He was like a, that, those were the days when, when famous authors went on, were celebrities enough to go on late night TV. So you would see Norman Mailer, you'd see Gore Vidal, you would, you know, they, they still
0: have a home on the Libro Schmibros podcast. Well,
1: thank God for that. Thank God for
0: Tell that. me, what do you think Gore would, would make of the state of American politics in 2020?
1: Oh, <laughs> um, you know, he was very big on the, you know, the decline of America, the end of America, uh, the United States of amnesia. So he would have been right at home. Um, commenting sardonically on america you know being flushed down the toilet and uh uh you know from his from his olympian perspective you know what would you expect of a bunch of yahoos like uh, you know the citizens of of mid-america
0: i should mention that we're speaking um the week after uh uh President Biden, perhaps you know, not
1: too long. President ago. elect. We call him President elect
0: Biden. Yes, I know, but but I'm trying not to date the broadcast. And ah. many more people will view this broadcast when he is already President Biden. Uh, we're speaking about a week after his election. How how sanguine are you for um, the 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 prospects of um, all right thinking uh, Americans uh, in the near and not so near future?
1: Well, I'm not sure about all Americans, but you know. The, the worst that we were told to fear um, by my many friends and your many friends uh, has not come to pass. There was no armed militias in the streets on election day. There was no violence at the polling places. Uh, the, of course, the Republicans have had a decades-long effort at vote suppression, but nevertheless... Um, 76 million people voted for Joe Biden, the most have ever voted for any presidential candidate in the history of the United States. I have to say 71 million people voted, voted for the other guy and which is more votes than any other candidate has gotten in the history of the United States with the exception of, of, of Joe Biden. Uh, but you know, right now, Trump, uh, has refuse to concede. I don't think it actually matters if he concedes. It, what matters is that Chief Justice John Roberts administers the oath of office to Joe Biden on January 20th, and I'm I'm pretty confident that that is going to happen. All signs are that is what's going to happen. I mean, all the th- there there are some lawsuits in the works. They're all ridiculous. Um, and then after he administers the oath of office, then what? Well, you know, people are afraid. Well, what if Trump doesn't leave? The what if Forget he refuses
0: to Forget leave? Trump. What are your What are your hopes and dreams oh, well, and fears uh, for you know the next several years after that?
1: Well, of course, our greatest fear is that Biden will be a failure as president because the Republican Senate will obstruct all the things we need him to do, and uh, in in four years. Um, Somebody other than Donald, somebody other than Donald Trump, somebody more effective than Donald Trump. Maybe one of these Fox News people um, will run as a Republican and will win. That would be the nightmare scenario uh, of mine. But you know, there are so many things that you can do with executive orders. There's there a hundred things Biden could do on day one, including canceling student debt. You know, uh, uh, ending. Um, cracking, uh, shutting down the pipe, the pipelines under the gas pipelines under construction, <clears throat> all kinds of environmental stuff. So there's a lot that Biden could do. And, uh, you know, it, it isn't yet decided that Republicans will win one, at least one seat in Georgia. Um, you know, This is, this is going to be a tight one. And uh, I, I think, I think, you know, they're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on both sides. Uh, If you live in Georgia, you are going to be so sick of seeing TV commercials uh, in about a month. Um, But it all depends on Georgia. It all depends on Georgia. And God bless Stacey Abrams, our hero, who has led the transformation of the Georgia electorate and more power to her. Let's give her money. And, uh, you know, the history of Georgia, you know. Georgia could save us, who would have thought?
0: (laughs) Perhaps a tax on broadcast advertising over the next couple of months could create a source of uh, a a revenue stream for for, (laughs) any number of deserving causes. I should, I I, I can't resist confiding my own hopes um, just because I've been beating my brains in to make them reality for about six months now. Um, This may be, well, it's not the first public announcement, but um, I, uh, Representative Ted Lieu of the South Bay, um, has forwarded language to the Legislative Council to draft a bill for, cross your fingers and no guarantees, but, um, the reinvention of the Federal Writers Project. Um, wow. This is something that, you know, a dream I've cherished since I worked at the NEA.
1: And You have written about this. I have read your wonderful essays about how how we need this and how great it could be and how to run it. And I have an idea of who should be the director. Oh, really? Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And give Uh, up. uh, I I know Libros Schmibros needs you, but I think the, the new Federal Writers Project would need you more.
0: Well, I, it's just possible that the New Federal Writers Project might even need Libro Schmibros. but this is all in the talking and bloviation stages, and I don't <laughs> want to jinx anything. Um, but um, let's, let's talk a bit more about, uh, well, for one thing, um, since broadcasting came up, um let's talk about your show you've you've been broadcasting for the nation for
1: how long now on kpfk and i assume coast to coast well the cape there's two separate shows the kpfk show started around 2000 Mm -hmm. the nation podcast has been going i think for maybe five years or something like that so you know i ask people questions and they tell me what they think and we do it every week and some people listen and uh, it, you know, it keeps me it keeps me on my game, as they say. Uh, I, I retired from teaching at UC Irvine yeah. uh, four years ago, mostly because I couldn't, I, I had a one hour commute mm. and- uh,
0: you know, <laughs> If for- only you'd stuck around this quarter and, and who knows <laughs> how many quarters to come, that evaporates. How do you think that's of, right. getting uh, ripped
1: yeah. Why didn't I expect why didn't I anticipate this? Anyway, I I just I'd already spent like 30 years of my life on the four oh five freeway in rush hour, and you know, enough already. So it's been a great I can devote more time to asking people questions on the podcast and on the KPFK show now that I'm a retired historian. Um don't we say emeritus? Also pardon me? Don't we say emeritus? Uh, we say emeritus. Yes, we say emeritus. Of course, during the period I was, I since I retired, Mike and I wrote this 800-page book. So, uh, you know, I've managed to find other other projects. But yeah, I really enjoyed. Uh, you know, here's the thing about about writing in America. I'm, you 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 know this well, but I'm not sure all our readers know this. It's hard to be a writer in America. Uh, it's you know the number of publishers is shrinking. The number of bookstores is shrinking and the number of, of outlets, media outlets for book talk is shrinking. You know, we, we mentioned, it used to be you could see Norman Mailer and Gore Vidal and, you know, their ilk uh, on late night TV. Uh, now, uh, some of the most famous authors are willing to appear on little podcasts like Libros, Libros, or Start Making Sense. Hey. They're willing to go on community radio stations like KPFK. So you can get really... Talented, important, big people on these little shows because there's hardly any place else left for them, uh, you know. So I, I've had Richard Ford on. I've, I've had who's on my bookshelf up here? Jane Mayer from the, uh, from the New Yorker. Um, you know, uh, uh, Naomi Klein, Chris Hayes. All of these people are willing to come on, you know, these little podcasts when they have books, uh, when they have books out. So, so the the collapse of the publishing industry has been a great boon to little <laughs> podcasts and community radio stations.
0: I should mention that on this very uh, telephone, uh, I have an alarm that comes up weekly and reminds me when it's time to tune in to Stop Making Sense, your oh. show. Um, it Remind us of the time slot just because I have a phone oh, the, that absolves me.
1: since since January of, of 2017, the KPFK, the KPFK show was renamed at that point, Trump Watch. Uh, and it's also the Trump Watch podcast. If you miss the live broadcast, you can get. But starting on January 20th, it's got to have a different name. And David, I'm hoping that you will help us ooh. come up with something to something else to call this thing. I mean, Biden Watch, that doesn't really have no. the same, the same, uh, uh, you know, je ne sais quoi. Um, so that's on KPFK live Thursday at three and then starting at four o'clock is the Trump Watch podcast, which you can get at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you know, uh, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. The gotcha. Nation podcast is called Start Making Sense, that um, that is available to podcast subscribers starting Wednesday afternoon and then Thursday uh, starting Thursday at the and wherever you get your podcast. So so we need we're going to by January 20th we need a new name for the Trump Watch podcast and please please help.
0: Well as the christener of libros schmibros years ago I I I hung out a, shing, a shingle uh, as uh, as what I, I I flattered myself to call a nomenclaturist, and uh, you're the first person <laughs> to actually knock on the door. Um, <laughs> so what what are you hoping for this name to to uh, connote?
1: Well, it it you know most shows on KPFK, perhaps the Libros Shemibros audience is not as aware of this as they might be. Have names like "The People United Will Never Be Defeated" or <laughs> or. Uh, dare to struggle, dare to win. Uh, so my goal is to is to have something a little less uh, intense than <laughs> that. And you know, Trump watch, you know everybody had a Trump watch for the last four years, CNN had Trump watch and you know the New Republic had a Trump watch. so that's it's okay if somebody else has has the same idea. but you know it should you know, this is this is you know talking about talking about politics in America. You know, seen from uh, what 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 was it that Wikipedia said? A left left wing perspective or something? like Left leaning
0: causes, yes.
1: <laughs> left leaning, yes. Uh, uh, support for left leaning causes might be implied by by this, or 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 not. Uh, so yes, you're our reigning nomenclaturist, and uh, we need help badly, badly. We know
0: this. My 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 first thought, which um, you know, uh, uh, you know, regardless of what the surrealists say, is rarely my best thought. Would be the people united will never shut up. But <laughs> I, I'm going to keep working on that.
1: I, I, I don't think that'll that will cut it.
0: Um, um, I I have another uh, self-aggrandizing question slash remark, which is that I'm the author of this book, Dear Los Angeles, The City in Diaries and Letters.
1: Amazing book.
0: Thank you. And I'm now working uh, on Dear California, the state in Diaries and Letters. So um, I I wonder if you would care to, well, certainly your own will be be welcome. I don't know if you've made any premature decisions about where the John Wiener archive will repose. But are there other diaries and or letters uh, within California, not just Los Angeles? And maybe I'd even broaden the collection to the the question to include um, unwritten memoirs or biographies um, that you think would be a welcome addition to the written record of California lore.
1: oh my goodness. Could I, you know, I wanna go back just for a minute to Dear Los Angeles. Sure. when I started reading Dear Los Angeles, I was annoyed as hell that you uh, didn't put this in chronological order. I'm a historian. Everything, you know, 1920 came before 1921, and you did it by day, and, and, and it was I mean, I, this really annoyed the hell out of me. So like, if you want to know, well, what were people thinking, you know, on, uh, the day after Pearl Harbor, it, it, it took hours, it took <laughs> hours to do this. So I spent about a week just gnashing my teeth, mad as hell. And then I just started reading the book and suddenly dawned on me, this was a brilliant idea. <laughs> this brings together things that of course never were together before and never will be together again. But it really is incredibly stimulating, provocative and totally fascinating. So I, uh, then, so I ended up being just filled with admiration and appreciation for the nutty way that you organized this. Well,
0: and, uh, at the risk of demythologizing my genius, um, it, it wasn't my idea. um seven years ago a book came out called uh New York Diaries um that uh that that um I don't think even pioneered the arrangement um in its own right I think there may have even one been one about London years ago and if you think you fought against that organizational uh uh, schema where January 1st has New Year's uh, uh diaries and letters from you know, uh, uh, you know, an early California jurist uh, in 1850 on up through Christopher Isherwood ringing out, uh, ringing in the new year in Santa Monica. I fought this for months and months, um, and then finally, you know, whether it was my publisher or or good sense, I gave in. And yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I I certainly reconciled myself to it, but no one has yet told me. Uh, about their own struggle, uh, <laughs> eventual capitulation to the organizing principle. So that's, that's lovely to hear. And for any, anybody who, who is still holding out for a chronological near Los Angeles, or at least a way to look up Pearl Harbor, you can go to the index. And I gather the electronic, the ebook of it, um, may just allow sorting in whatever order you possibly want. So you can look at it chronologically, you can look at it by author, you can look at it by subject. If not, I will certainly insist on that for for the for dear California. But I think it may even be possible if you know how to hotwire dear Los Angeles. So um, thank you for um, for stalling and allowing us to discuss my book. But you know, it, it, who's who's unwritten story in California? Um, past or present, seems to you a missing book on even the voluminous shelf behind you.
1: Unwritten. Unwritten. Yeah. Unwritten.
0: Whose I'm biography gonna... would you write if, you know, given world enough
1: in time? I'm going to have to take a, a pass on this one and I'll get back to you on this. Fair I mean, enough. You know, some, some of the most fascinating people in our book <clears throat> actually did... Dorothy Healy, for example, the head of the Southern California Communist Party, very inspiring figure to, to especially to Mike and also to me and a whole generation of of radicals in Los Angeles, black and white. There, is a, she did a memoir with Maurice Isserman mm-hmm. called "What's It Called?" It's called uh, "Dorothy Healy Remembers." You know, uh I'm sure there's there's a Dorothy Healy uh, collection of interviews at, at UCLA, which has a lot more that Mike used uh, for our book on L.A. in the 60s. Um, But she's a a memorable and quotable um, uh, uh, and not fully appreciated person.
0: I have to say I'm a little ashamed of you. Um, I gather (laughs) journals, the journals of Richard Neutra are in print, are they not? Um, And I believe edited by someone of your acquaintance?
1: (laughs) My, My wife, Artisan video maker Judy Fiskin um, had a job when she was young. How did you know this? Working, on, working at the Neutra house with a very elderly Richard Neutra on um, editing his, his uh, diaries uh, into, into readable English. Um, uh, yes, how did you know this? Um, well, Wikipedia is good
0: for certain things. Um, and lo and behold, I discovered that I, I um, was was ashamed not to have located it while I was working on Dear Los Angeles, but I do intend to include Los Angeles, yes, even in Dear California, and you better believe I'll probably be on the phone to you and Judy begging for some sort of copyright related mercy. Um, <laughs> I see we've been talking for quite a while, and um, it's flown by. I'm, I'm quite enjoying it. I could probably scare up maybe two other questions, um, barring
1: anything. I, I, I still love to talk about what's wrong with the Aaron Sarkin movie, you know.
0: And yeah, you know, I, I would love to to return to that. Um, now, where were you in '68 in in Chicago in, in during the the summer?
1: I did not go. I. Um, You know, when they first announced there were going to be protest marches on the on the Democratic National uh, Convention, this was like for people who might have been too young to know this history. The war in Vietnam was a democratic war at that point. It was President LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who had escalated it from a few from like uh, 10 or 40,000 up to a half a million American troops there. So if you're going to protest the war, you had to protest the Democrats. <clears throat> and but then and and rennie davis who was organizing this <clears throat> along with dave Dellinger and tom hayden expected hundreds of thousands of people to come but then the city of los Angeles, uh, the city of chicago the city of chicago denied permits to the march and mayor richard j Daley of chicago announced a few months earlier that he was ordering the police to uh shoot to maim rioters and shoot to kill arsonists. So it was clear that this was going to be a brutal uh, battle between Chicago police and whoever showed up to march. The Panthers, the Black Panthers, uh, recommended not going. They called it Custeristic. Um, <laughs> makers of a kind we don't really have anymore in America. And uh, I did not know that term at the time, but that was sort of my view, like, the, you would go, if you went to Chicago, it would be to fight the police. And so instead of hundreds of thousands going, really only about 10,000 people went to Chicago. Was, in fact, it was, as, as, as I explained in Conspiracy in the Streets, the Extraordinary yeah. Trial of the Chicago 7, uh, it was one of the smallest anti-war demonstrations of, of the era. I mean... Three years before, SDS organized the first big anti-war protest, the March on Washington in April 1965, 25,000 people came to that. The protest in 1969 involved hundreds of thousands, eventually a quarter of a million people. So for 10,000 people to show up in Chicago and join by maybe another 5,000 locals was a huge disappointment, and I was one of the people who did not go. I, I I
0: just thought of another name for your for for Trump Watch. When you change it, the whole world is listening.
1: <laughs> don't, you think, don't you think that's a little grandiose?
0: Well, let, let's not say grandiose. Let's say aspirational.
1: <laughs> it's a very nice way of thinking about it. Yeah. It could be that they're all listening for you know what what the what the people united are going to uh, you know call for. I will. I will continue to think. Give me a deadline.
0: Deadlines uh, focus the mind. January
1: nineteenth. January nineteenth <laughs> January.
0: Oh, okay. Well, yet another reason for me to look forward to it. Uh, January the twentieth. Um, what did you think of the ending of Sorkin's version? Well,
1: you know, I'm glad you asked about that because I've thought about the ending a lot. Uh, I read that quote from Sorkin on Fresh Air saying he won something that left a lump in your throat and made you feel 2 inches taller and that's he achieves that in this ending. The end of this movie, the movie has seen, you know, the the big debate of this movie. Well, there's the debate between the defendants and the judge and the prosecution, but there's also debate within the the left between Abby Hoffman, revolution for the hell of it, cultural radicalism, have fun, and and uh, especially Tom Hayden, who's a spokesman for a much more kind of familiar uh, kind of actually electoral politics. He wants to win elections. He says, if you can't win elections, you know you're nowhere. And this just seems pathetic uh, to to um, to Abby Hoffman, who wants to confront, to desanctify, to leg- to delegitimize the courtroom and a pa- pa- American power. Um, and the finale the, is when they come to the sentencing and the judge asks uh, the, uh, t- Tom Hayden um, to make a closing statement on behalf of all the defendants. And he says, you know, Mr. Hayden, you could go far in the system if you just uh, you know, shaped up a little bit. And if you make a closing statement that is respectful and that is not political, you know, I will look favorably upon you in sentencing, inviting him to join the system. Uh, Do you understand, Mr. Hayden? And, you know, we're all just hoping Tom do the right thing here. And Tom then defies the judge, stands up and, and instead of being respectful and not political, reads a list that we've been hearing about all through the film of Americans killed in Vietnam, defying the judge, speaking truth to power the courtroom erupts in cheering the defendants are on their feet we in our living rooms leap to our feet cheering yes go tom guilty tom take. hayden the happy ending is that tom hayden has learned to speak truth to power tom hayden has has learned to uh, not go along um uh and and, and to uh he's learned a lesson from the judge who's been so unjust he's learned a lesson from abby hoffman um, to to speak the truth and uh that's our happy ending now that is a ridiculous thing to say about tom hayden you know tom hayden was on trial charged with felonies because he had spoken truth to power defied the rules you know challenged the status quo but in the context of the movie And and everybody, all of our friends, are mad as hell about this. How could you do this to Tom Hayden? This is ludicrous. This is pathetic. Uh, This is Sorkinization of our history. But what Sorkin is saying here is um, Tom Hayden... damn it. He has learned to stand up for what is right even though it it is a risky even though it is a risky and dangerous thing um, and the message that ordinary people can stand up and challenge injustice and speak truth to power this is actually a very good message for a political movie in America today and so I appreciate what Aaron Sorkin is trying to do here. I encourage people to see the movie and uh, yeah it's it's not it's not a documentary but You know, as a message film, I think that's a very good message.
0: Do you think Tom, uh, as a friend of his and someone who married into Hollywood royalty and the person of Jane Fonda, and uh, someone who had, I think, very successfully, um, you know, undertook the the rather complicated task of shaping his own life into what I still think is one of the great American political memoirs, Reunion, do you think he would have seen it that way?
1: You know, um... Tom uh, Sorkin is very proud that Tom Hayden was the one defendant that he consulted on this, even though others were around. Bobby Seale is still around. Rennie Davis is still around. Lee Weiner and John Freunds are still around. And uh, there was one of these online video events where Tom Hayden's uh, son, Troy, um, read from some notes of Tom's uh, to Aaron Sorkin about the changes that he recommended in the script. And, you know, if this is gold for people like you and me. He didn't complain about the ending. The thing that he complained about the most was a line where Tom says to Abby, you don't really want the war in Vietnam to end because if the war in Vietnam ends, you have no more place on TV. And Tom says, I never would have said that. This is completely unfair to Abby. Of course, Abby wanted the war to end. We all wanted the war to end. You got to take that sentence out. Um, So that's the sort of thing Tom was concerned about. Um, It stayed in, didn't it? It stayed in. It is in there. It is in there. And, um, you know, it's part of each of them has an arc where each accuses the other of, yeah. manipulating the situation to advance themselves and they each learn to appreciate each other in the uh, sorkinization but through through sorkinization uh, but it's interesting that tom did not at least in the part that that his son read at one of these events he didn't complain about the uh the ending being uh being wrong or unrealistic or inaccurate
0: Selfishly, I should ask you: um, ha, Did Tom ever write you a, a letter or even an email um, that uh, might lend itself to inclusion in Dear California?
1: I uh,
0: start digging.
1: You know, we we worked on this book together, but it was all about you know what should go in and what should be what could be left out of a when you're cutting a twenty-one thousand page transcript down to two hundred pages you make some editorial decisions and you know he had opinions about that but they're not the most important thing but i by the way i agree about reunion i reread the chapters in reunion about the chicago demonstrations and the trial uh, when the movie came out and our book came out. And yeah, it's a, it's a terrific book. It's a terrific book. And of course, Tom Hayden did join the, the system in the 70s. He ran for office. He got elected many times. He uh, achieved wonderful things as a state legislator. I, I agree completely with you. It's an, it's an American story. Um,
0: no sooner does he end it with his, uh, happy marriage than I think the marriage ended shortly after publication. We've, we've seen that before in some cases. I can't think of them off the top of my head, but, but people who reach a sense of closure upon finishing a memoir and then... Their lives change completely. Um, since you and come to think of it, the the final crawl after the scene of reciting um, his uh, all you know beginning to recite all the names of all the Americans killed in Vietnam. I believe the final crawl stresses the fact that he went on to serve umpteen terms in the California state yes. legislature. Yes. Um, yes. By the way, that closing scene reminds me of uh, uh, my new idea for a, uh, a public land art installation um, which, which I, I don't know how to find a collaborator for, but I think is is woefully uh, uh, overdue and appropriate, which would be to take the I think it's a dozen miles of wall that Trump actually did succeed in building in addition to you know the, all the miles that just you know replaced old fencing with new fencing. I think all the Americans who've died from COVID, their names should be inscribed on that wall, wow. like the Vietnam wall.
1: Wow, so. awesome,
0: awesome. <laughs> um, let's see, I have, uh, I have another question, which is, um, you know, I suppose with respect to your other books, you're, you're a scholar of the Cold War as much as anything. Do you think we are at risk of entering another Cold War, either internationally or internally?
1: Man, you you closing with some big ones here. Um, the Nation magazine is always worried about provocative moves towards Russia. And, you know, it was one of the great ironies that uh, conflict with Russia, the other great nuclear power is the issue here, um, uh, of course, was always a Republican thing. The Republicans were always banging the drums. But then we got Trump, who... We do wonder what exactly, you know, have they got on him, or is it just that he still wants that his next project will be the, you know, Trump, uh, ho- the Trump ho- hotel in Moscow. Is that the only reason he has had uh, such détente with, uh, with, with Putin? No, um, I, he
0: has. Uh, I, I think Putin has a, a remote control arsenic pill in Trump's
1: <laughs> bloodstream that he can activate at any moment. <laughs> Uh, You know, China is a big worry and and Trump has done everything, done a lot to provoke conflict and disruption with China and China, you know, it's a horribly repressive anti-democratic country, which does a lot of terrible things. Uh, On the other hand, they're, you know, probably the most powerful country in the world right now economically. Uh, So, so... You know, that's where the new locus of, of conflict is shifting to the Pacific that's been going on for a decade or two it doesn't take me to tell you about this. I mean, the battle within the United States between the right and left has never been so intense. And, and everybody knows that, you know, it's not going to go away with Trump. There's these 71 million people who uh, what we thought four years ago was, okay, some of these people, some of these people are just Republicans who want their tax cut, and they'll vote for any Republicans. Well, what about these extra, these new pe- new Republicans, the people, the people who went from Obama to Trump? There's not a lot of them, but you know they were enough to give him the election in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania four years ago. This year they were just enough on the other side in those same three states. But you know, four years ago their view was, well, the Democrats haven't done much for us. Really, our lives haven't changed let's give the other guy a chance. He says he cares about us. Let's see what he does. Well, they saw. They had four years. We thought it was a horrifying four years. And five million people more than voted for him last time, voted for him this time. They liked what they saw. And this is still, you know, perhaps you can tell by my tone of voice, immensely dismaying, upsetting, worrisome. What what do they want America to be? Where will they turn next? Now now what? Uh, That I think is the big worry. Trump will go. Um, Of course, his main goal is to get them to send him five bucks, 10 bucks, 25 bucks first for his legal defense. Then he'll be raising money for his 2024 campaign. Then he'll be raising money for his library. So the grift, the Trump grift, (laughs) you forgot about the library. Of all people. (laughs) <laughs> that, that that was uh, Rick Perlstein this morning tweeted that this is gonna be the next the next big thing. Of course, the concept of the Trump library, has there ever been anything so laughable? What's gonna be in there? Some big Mac rappers, you know, and some <laughs>
0: Well, as the son of a Wisconsin-born father and uh, or a Wisconsin-raised father and a Pennsylvania-born mother, I, I feel entitled to at least a little optimism and uh, and who knows maybe a, a new federal writers project can can reintroduce America to itself. Um, a last question? Well, second penultimate question. Um, you uh, you are also the author of um, yeah. a, a book about uh, John Lennon's. Uh, FBI file. Um, This is the last question. Have you seen your own FBI file?
1: You know, I got it in the, in the seventies. And uh, I mean, what happened was uh, this, the, this, the origins of this were that I, as I said, I helped organize an SDS chapter at Princeton in the 1965 or something like that. And Shadgar Hoover thought that SDS was, you know, controlled by Moscow. And so every person who was an an activist or any kind of leader of SDS got got investigated by the FBI. So that's what all this that's where all this started. They they went back to my high school, St. Paul Central, and asked my teachers about me and my teachers there's, uh, you can't tell who they are, their names, you know, I've been removed, but my teachers assured them that I was, you know, a, a good American and that I was not uh, under the control of Moscow. Uh, <laughs> so I found that very gratifying. Um, and, and the other thing you find in FBI files is they were a maniacal newspaper clippers. In those days, everything was in print and they had, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of clerks. And if your name ever appeared in the paper, somebody would clip it out and Xerox it and stick it in your file. So here's, you know, the student newspaper, letters to the editor, uh, you know, talk about ephemera. They collected ephemera like you can't believe. So, and then everything else is blacked out. It's hard to tell what the, what the hell. Um, well, the God's most interesting, welcome. I can tell you one little anecdote about this. In, then in 19, about 67, I had moved to Cambridge. I was in graduate school. And I was in Harvard SDS and writing for the SDS newspaper about what was going on at Harvard. And there was a knock on the door of my uh, apartment and there were two FBI guys there. And they said, uh, we're doing a routine background check on one of your uh, Princeton classmates, Joel Premack. And we'd like to ask you some questions about Joel Premack. And Joel Premack was the valedictorian of my class. He was a brilliant uh, a physicist and mathematician. And he was anti-war. You know, I knew a little bit about him, but we weren't close friends. So I I, I was very puzzled by this. Like, why? there's 800 people in this class. Why, why are they asking me about Joel Premack? I, so I said, you know, I didn't know this guy very well. You know, I... You collaborate. You talk no, to I them. I told them you one sentence there. at the front door. I said, "I didn't know this guy very well. I don't really have anything to say about him. I, as far as I know, you know, he's a perfectly okay guy." And 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 I'm really not going to talk to you today. Last month, I was on another one of these video type events with Joel Premack, who is a distinguished professor at UC Santa Cruz. And I told him this story, and I said, Joel, did you ever get that 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 security clearance? And he said, I never applied for a security clearance in 1967. I was a leftist. I was a radical. I, I they were never going to give me a security clearance. So that's the that's my last story for today. Well, I
0: hope your file is still open, if only because somebody is somebody has to subscribe to every newspaper in the country. Ah, let me think um, well,
1: well, uh, I just want to thank you as the nomenclaturist for your uh your your efforts which I hope will will continue and oh, absolutely. Uh, and i 'm looking forward to this california book uh,
0: as as am i though though i 'm getting a little sidetracked by a novel, but luckily, the one at least has a has a deadline. And I encourage you to bring um, a shelf load, at least of your own books, the Libro Schmibros at your earliest opportunity so that everybody out there can come and uh, marvel at them and uh, see how warmly <laughs> inscribed they are. And uh, I hope borrow them and learn from them as much as I have. That's a great uh, invitation. I, we will do it. Thank you, John Wiener, uh, on behalf of uh, Libro Schmibros and all of our podcast listeners and viewers. And what's your next book?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, right now, I don't have a next book. Right now, I am happy to be doing these podcasts and waiting to see what will happen. And, you know, I just wrote an 800-page book. Give me a break. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you, John.
1: Thank you, David. This was
0: terrific. Oh, I enjoyed it so much. So ends another episode of Libro Schmibros, recorded at the bilingual, nonprofit profit Schmibros Lending Library in Boyle Heights. By all means, follow us online in all the old familiar places, or email us via info at libroschmibros.org. By the way, we couldn't do this podcast without the whole Libros team, Quatemok, Colleen, Diana, and Alberto. And all of them would kill me if I didn't add this. Please consider visiting libroschmibros.org hitting the donut button, (laughs) the donate button, and giving us a gift. We put good free books into people's hands five days a week here at Libros, right across from Mariachi Plaza, up in the old Boyle Hotel. I'm David Kippen, and there'll always be a free book for you and thousands more to borrow here at Libros Schmibros.